Welcome to the Expedition Success Podcast, where we hope to elevate your mind through discussion with successful innovators, entrepreneurs, athletes, and creators on their journey towards success. I'm your host, Michael Setiawan. And I am your co-host, Liam Kaufman. In today's episode, we sit with David Zilberman, the founder and CEO of Graphite RX, as he breaks down his journey towards becoming a successful entrepreneur and business owner. David holds a degree from UC Berkeley, School of Law at Reichman University in Israel, and an MBA from UC Berkeley's world-renowned Haas School of Business. So without further ado, welcome David to the show. We're glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. So we'll jump right into it. Um, So talk about your background uh, and your upbringing. Um, I've heard that it's very interesting. And uh, so if you just touch on that. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, so I was uh, I was born in Israel and moved here uh, at a young age when I was a year old and grew up in the U.S., uh, mainly in the Bay Area. And after I finished high school, I decided I wanted to go back to Israel and serve. Uh, in Israel, there's mandatory service for whoever lives there, but if you leave the country at a young age, uh, it's not required. But I decided I wanted to volunteer and ended up spending four years in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, in a special operations unit, I went on to officer's training, and and that's also when I met my uh, met my wife when I was in the middle of my service. And so by the time I was done with my service, uh, I, my original plan was to come back uh, to the U.S., maybe go to UC Santa Barbara or somewhere fun. Uh, but I decided to stay in Israel uh, until my wife finished her studies. So I did my undergrad um, degree in Israel at uh, Reichman University. It used to be called at the time the IDC Interdisciplinary Center. And I think I was maybe the fourth or fifth class. So it was a brand new school or relatively new school. Um, but they had a dual, essentially they had a dual degree in business and in law. And um, so two, essentially two degrees uh, that you can study for at the same time. And as I was getting close to finishing my degree and I was thinking, do I go down the, the, the path of business or law? I had some opportunities to potentially go to McKenzie um, or to clerk um, at a uh, one of the leading law firms in Israel that was doing a lot of startup work. Um, I decided uh, that I was going to go the route of law. Also had uh, the fortune of clerking at the Israel Supreme Court for uh, for six months as well. So that was a good opportunity um, to to kind of see things and how you know how the world has changed right through law, and then. At the law firm in Tel Aviv, I also got to work with startups, and, and that's when um, you know I really had my first kind of interaction with founders uh, and startups and investors. And then um, when at about that time, I was coming up on ten years in Israel. I was already married uh, and had my my first child, which is one of Michael's good friends, Ben. Um, and, um, and then we decided that we wanted to, uh, to spend a few years in the U S, uh, for me to get a master's degree in law. And then, uh, and then we'd go back to Israel and that was 2005 and we haven't gone back yet. Uh, so it was basically, uh, went to, to Berkeley, did a, did a master's degree in law. And one of my professors, uh, was a senior partner at a firm called Wilson Sonsini which is the premier law firm, one of the premier law firms, at least at the time, for um, for startups and technology companies. Like they incorporated Yahoo and Google and you know, to companies like that public. And so um, 
you know, for me, I, I knew coming to do my, my law degree, I wanted to be in and around startups. And then I got to go to, had the good fortune of going to a firm where I could do that as well. And, but what I saw while I was there was as much as I, you know, pursued law because I wanted to change the world. Um, you know, I saw that, you know, the time spent, I was doing, you know, mergers and acquisitions, I was working on IPOs and financings, but where I enjoyed spending my time the most was working with founders. Like I would just enjoy talking to them and kind of soaking it all in. And I wasn't, I wasn't even billing. Like I would turn off the clock and I would just do it because I really, really enjoyed it. And that's, that's when I started getting bit kind of by the bug um, of, of startups. And I didn't, I was, I wanted to do something. I couldn't find a company to join. Uh, that was the right company for me. I didn't have a good idea to start something on my own at the time. And so I was introduced to a Bay Area company that was getting ready to go public. So it was a med device company called NDS Surgical Imaging. And there I got the opportunity to essentially do business development in addition to being the company's general counsel. And so that was kind of how I was able to put a foot kind of into business. And that was 2008. So the market crashed. Uh, they didn't go public. Uh, became kind of a, a bloody time uh, in business uh, where, with a lot of layoffs and things like that. And so at that time, I decided to get my, uh, my MBA. Uh, and it was a joint program at, at the time this program existed, it was between Berkeley and Columbia. So again, one of these, you get two degrees, two MBAs, not that you can do something with two MBAs, uh, but, uh, it was a joint program. We spent, you know, two thirds of our time in, in the Bay area and Berkeley, and then a third of the time in, in Columbia. And so that was, a that was a really great experience. Um, and it was when I, finished, you know, while I was working on my MBA and finishing it up, that's really when I started my first company. Let me pause there before I get into to lecture. Any questions on that? Yeah. So you touched on a lot of different things. Um, and just going back to the beginning, um, when I've spoken to anyone who's had the opportunity to study in a different country or just live in a different country in a different culture, they really just say it's one of the most valuable things that they ever got to experience or do. Um, so can you touch on some of the like benefits and just things that living in a different country kind of gave to you um, and what, what it kind of, how it's kind of affected your career. Sure. So, you know, so for me, it was a little different uh, because of, um, you know, the unique circumstances. I'm, I'm Israeli. I was went back, I served before I, before I studied. Um, so I was already living in Israel, you know, as a, as an Israeli. Um, but I would say that just getting experience uh, with other cultures, it's very relevant for me now as the CEO of Graphite RX. Uh, part of my team is outside of the U.S. Um, you know, we have people on my team like me who weren't born here in the U.S. And so, just having having experience uh, with other cultures, um, and you know, it also puts you in a unique situation because you know you're the outsider uh, there, right? Whether it's France, Italy, South Africa, wherever it is that you would go, Asia. Right, you're you're the outsider, and then I think it also provides some perspective when you're back home here in the U.S. and there's others, they're the outsiders, and and you know I think you have a little more um, empathy, right, for them and what they may be going through and understanding some of the cultural nuances and you know their accents funny, right, uh, and they don't get all the jokes because you know humor is pretty contextual to culture, and so I think just being able to do that at a, at a young age or at any time, really, you know, I think it, it makes you, um, at least, at least for me, it, you know, felt like it, it made me 
uh, more understanding right, of other cultures. Um, and, and I would say I think the, the main benefit, and it's fun, right? Like if you have a chance to go spend a semester abroad, um, you know, it's a great experience. Yeah, no, I definitely, I actually had a Chinese exchange student, Miles, who I now refer to as my brother for uh, three years. Um, and I definitely saw that and that change from, from like seeing how someone coming to the country, they're just not used to anything. Um, and I just kind of showed him what it's like in America and I saw how he kind of developed and now, now he's uh, actually going to college at Rochester, but, um, I'm definitely see how I look at, um, people who come here from other countries to study. Um, and it's just really tough not knowing like the language, not knowing anything. Um, so I definitely see that empathy that you get from being able to, be with people from another culture or country. You know, it also is something that takes a, a really a lot of courage, uh, both when you would go, right? If you were to go and do that as an exchange, one of the members of my team is also a good friend. Uh, he was telling me that when he went to undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, he not only did he not tour the school in advance, like he's from, so I should say he's from India. So not only did he not tour the school in advance and know his first time coming to the U.S. was coming to study. And, you know, think about being 18 years old and having like no one here and you're showing up, right, in, in the country and, and now you need to figure stuff out. So if you remember what it's like kind of your first week um, at Purdue when everyone's kind of carrying around their bags and, and you know, their um, sleeping bags and all that stuff. And you could tell some of them look like this might be their first time. It's an interesting experience. Yeah, you know, no, definitely. definitely. Yes, I uh, yeah, definitely saw a lot of that first week. Um, but yeah, so you you mentioned that you you didn't have to go back and serve in Israel, but you wanted to. Um, could you like why? Could you touch on why you wanted to go back? And could you also just talk about your experience serving and what that was like? Sure. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, my circumstances are, are a bit different. Um, not all Israelis who were born um, in Israel uh, necessarily have a desire um, to, to go back and serve. I had everyone in my family served. Uh, my father was also uh, killed in the Yom Kippur War of 1973, and I was born eight months after, um, after he was killed. And so uh, my mother was was uh, very early in pregnancy when when that happened, and so yeah, there's there's that that part of it that it was um, kind of meant meant more. Um, the other part too was you know when I was when I was getting kind of towards the end of high school, I think I was losing direction, right? Um, kind of you guys remember what it's like to be 16 and 17. You got a lot going on and. And I had a bit of a chaotic uh, upbringing, and so I felt like I was kind of losing direction. And and it was just something that kind of drew me drew me in. And I say that um, that's you know probably saved my life. Um, just having being able to be part of something kind of bigger than yourself, um, where where you're contributing, um, you know, to society, contributing to security. Um, it's it you know for me it was very grounding. Um, and also, uh, you know, gave me kind of a, a different sense of purpose. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a, as a young kid, you know, I started, I think by the time I, I, I enlisted, I was 19. Um, I mean, I was your guys' age, right. And, you know, think of the things you're dealing with now. Um, but, you know, for me and I had friends from high school 
who went on to college and I would come back once a year to visit. And, you know, they were studying and working hard and they were also having fun and going to the beach and, you know, and I had a very different experience um, with a lot of responsibility, at a young age, um, kind of life and death type of responsibility and pressure. And, and, you know, that, that is a way to mature pretty quickly. So for so, me, military service was, was really, um, was very defining for me. So like being so young and talking about how you're under the pressure of like life and death situations, like how did you deal with that pressure and how did you kind of get used to that or be able to, to deal with it? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I have, I would say people had asked me too about living in Israel because, um, you know, for, for many years there was, there was bombings and terrorist attacks and, and some people had asked me, you know, what's it like? And, you know, when you're in a pressure cooker, you don't know that you're in a pressure cooker, right? Like that's kind of just your, that's kind of your environment when, when you've become accustomed to it. And so in the military, that's just part of, that's, that's what you sign up for. Um, and that's right. I have, I have friends here in, in the U.S., uh, very good friends who are veterans and, and we, we exchange stories and it's, it's very true, regardless of which military you go to. Um, you know, obviously if you're in a, if you're in a place that tends to be a bit more tense, um, or if you're deployed, you know, to areas and that, that kind of elevates things. But, um, it is one of those where you just have that responsibility. I mean, if you, if you work on an aircraft carrier, right, you need to make sure that those planes or helicopters make it off deck and come back and that's life or death, right? You screw up. You didn't do something you were supposed to do, even though you're 18 and a half, 19, that could be the life of the pilots and, and your colleagues. And so that's just, uh, that's par for the course. No, I think that's extremely valuable and just like. I, th I feel like there's a huge trend of uh, like people who served and then going on to like start their own company like you did. And I just think being in those situations and dealing with that pressure just teaches you so much, um, really gives you insight into like what a, what a tough, making a tough decision can be like and having all that pressure on you. You know, but the alternative to, to service, right? Not, not everyone's built for it, nor does everyone kind of want to go and you know, nor would their parents want them to go. You know, there's also, there's volunteering, right? You could volunteer, there's civil, there's different types of civil service. You can, you could volunteer for six months in different countries um, that could really use um, help. And so there are other ways to kind of give, you know, to be, to be part of something that's larger than you uh, and to contribute to that. And yes, it's not the same as, you know, the circumstances within the military, but you can learn a lot of the same things kind of the selfness, selflessness that comes with volunteering or with service. 100%. <clears throat> okay, yeah. So thank you for talking about that. Um, so after um, your time studying in Israel and serving there, um, you came back. You said you came back to the U.S. and you went to the uh, – you went to Haas, the school – Haas School of Business to so, get you. So, so first I went to, I actually went to Berkeley Law. So when I came back, I, I went to law school, right? And so that's where I got my degree. And then I worked at the law firm. And then about five years, so in 2010 is when I, I went and started, went to Haas and, and Columbia, actually both schools because it was a joint, uh, joint degree program. Okay. You, you said you studied law and then you, you enjoyed being around um, – around businesses and around 
founders. Um, what what exactly about them? Like like what drew you towards them, and like like why did you want to work with them? So at the particularly at the early stages, you know, some of the founders that I worked with, you know, I helped them incorporate their company, and you know, they came really with an idea and a lot of passion. Um, some had business experience, so some came. Most of them came with technical type of experience. Uh, some had business experience. There were some that were repeat founders. There's this um, you, the this strong desire to to have an impact. That's what I would see with a lot of them um, to to make a change. Some and some did it for different reasons, right? Some did it because they wanted to be independent. They don't want. They never wanted to have a boss again, so they figured they'd start their own company. Uh, some felt like they wanted to change the world. Um, and some did it because they want to get rich. The, I'd say the, the get rich part usually doesn't hold very long because the amount of pain you feel until you get even to a point that you may, this thing may even work out, uh, usually don't last very long, but it was working with these founders and, you know, I having, now I'm on my second startup you're so resource constrained in the beginning uh, and you're, you're kind of trying to do everything. Having someone like I was their lawyer at the time and having someone that they trusted that was also seeing some things, you know, that other companies were doing and just being able to talk. Right. Um, I think for them was, was very helpful. And for me, it was interesting, right? Cause they trusted me like beyond the legal stuff. This was talking about their business, talking about some of the challenges they had. Maybe they had an issue with the co-founder and just to help them work through that. Right. So that they don't break up or if they do break up, they break up amicably. So they don't end up spending six months, you know, going through a bunch of legal stuff. And so, um, but, you know, hearing about their ideas and what they were doing and, and just being able to, you know, be on the sideline and, and kind of help coach uh, them through you know, parts of their journey um, was really fulfilling. And would you say, like, you said that they all had a really strong desire, whether that was to make an impact on the world or just to make money. Um, would you say that that's or, something... Or to be independent. Or, or be to independent, be independent, yeah. <laughs> um, would you say that's something that you've always had um, since a young age or something that you kind of developed as you got older to like have a strong desire to do something or make a change in the world? Yeah, I don't know if I could, if I'd say that I could look back and, and say as a young kid that I had the strong desire, you know, I know that I, if I look back, there's things that I did when I was younger that I did because I wanted to, to help people. I remember like when I was, uh, so, I'm, so we're, we're Jewish and, and uh, when I was preparing for my bar mitzvah, we were in this town that I think maybe had like eight Jews uh, at that point. Uh, and it had a synagogue that was like 80 years old. It was coming apart. And I just decided that um, I wanted to help um I wanted to help clean it up and fix it up and kind of paint it and, and do that. And even though that wasn't our congregation or anything like that. And there was a few points as a, as a kid that I, I do remember kind of doing those things, but there are people who did much more than I, I did. Like they were really, you know, they really kind of applied themselves to, um, to, uh, to volunteering and, and things like that. Um, I do think that what drew me to learn and study law is a lot of what's drawn me to, to at least to this this startup. Um, a little bit my first one as well. 
is that it, that that desire yes to, to to have some kind of an impact right on the world something do something you know, i i want to leave i when i take my last breath i i want to know that i've kind of left this place a little better than i found it i didn't and have so, that perspective when i was your age i have that perspective now at my age but that's that's kind of how i think so would you say that your experience working as a lawyer didn't necessarily satisfy that desire to have an impact on the world or what is it exactly that made you switch from uh, working as a lawyer to, you know, like having your own startup and working on your own startup? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so remember I did study business and law in undergrad. So I was, we'll call it undecided. And in justifying for myself why I did that, I figured that um, even, assuming I go the business route, having some background in law would be helpful. And I talked to people before and I'd gotten some advice that just some of the ways that you learn that you learn to think um, when you're studying law and that could be very helpful. Um, I think when I was in, so, so going into this program of business and law, I went in with a total business mindset. I wasn't planning on changing really the world. And I think it was probably my first semester, my first courses of like constitutional law, things like that, where that became much stronger in me. And I started shifting kind of more to the, the legal side of it. Um, and the, now, if you talk to, if you talk to people, younger people that have, that have gone to law school and they're lawyers today, they, um, a lot, I think most of them will tell the same story. They were drawn to law school. They want to change the world. And when it came time to figure out how are they going to pay their bills, then they went into corporate law, right? Where they weren't going to change the world, right? That's, uh, and so, you know, there's that part of it uh, where it is, okay, you go in with the desire to change the world and then you say, okay, I want to have an impact in other ways. I want to do things that are going to be interesting and fun and that kind of draw me in. I want to be able to pay down my school debt. And so you go to a large firm uh, and large firms do a lot of corporate type work. Um, I, I was just lucky enough to go to one that did a lot of startup work as well. So that's interesting to me because um, from my perspective of law, like it seems more like how I thought it was just like one dimensional where you kind of go, you become a lawyer and you're working on like cases. Um, but you're talking about it as like, oh, if you like law can help you change the world and there's a lot of good uses for it within like starting up a company and, and working with the startups. So what are some of like, like where does law come into play and what were some of the the places where it really has made a difference and you starting up your own business. Yeah. So if you were to ask me and say, look, David, I want to, uh, I want to be an entrepreneur one day. Should I go to law school? I would say absolutely not. Right. Like that's don't do that. That's, that's not the best path for it. If you're, if you'd say, look, I'm undecided. There's a few things I'd like to, to look, look into. And I, and I want to have some different experiences then maybe, um, law school is a tough is a tough thing, right? It's just to, to get into the right school, you got to work really hard in your undergrad, and then it's hard to get in, and then it's two years, and it's expensive, and um, and then you go on and, and and to to then you know study for the bar. So the um, I would say that the like in, in our area in pharmaceuticals, for example, there are um, people that have risen in the ranks of leadership that did start off as lawyers or went to law school. Why? Because it's, it's a heavily regulated industry. And so that that kind of complex regulated industries tend to, um, uh, to be more open to bringing on 
people who had a, a, a legal background and then, you know, then they kind of learn the business, you know, side of things. There's also people who do a joint uh, JD MBA, which I didn't do a joint JD MBA, but I did a, you know, I did a master's in law and then later on I did an MBA. So they were, they weren't joint. They were five years support apart, but kind of similar in concept. Okay. Okay. So then after, okay. So now, You've worked as a lawyer, right? So you went to you went to business and school for business and law, and now you've worked as a lawyer. And now, after working as a lawyer, then you decided to pursue your MBA, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. So, so you said you said you were, it was a joint program with Columbia and Haas. Um, so, um, can you like touch on that just a little bit? Like, like what was what do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, so it was it was an executive MBA, and the difference between a, an executive MBA and what's called just a standard full time MBA is um, usually executive MBA. Um, it's people who have been in the industry for longer, um, and it's not it's not full time. Meaning you don't have to quit your job for two years and just focus on your studies. You do a, you 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 study while you're working. And so it's built around typically weekends, alternate weekends, uh, sometimes it may be two weeks um, or a week to two weeks where you have to take off of work. But you do need to have an employer um, who is um, willing to support you in that, at least by giving you the time off. Uh, it's not a good executive programs are not good ones when you're um, when you're working the kind of job where if you're working 12, 14 hours a day, it's really hard to study because you're studying every day, even if you're only in class once every two weeks, you're studying at least an hour or two a day uh, and your weekends are full. It's really hard actually doing an executive, an executive MBA. Uh, it's, it is actually a lot harder um, than a full-time um, MBA. When you're doing that younger, you have less commitments and you can just focus on that full-time, just like you guys are focusing on school full-time right now. Imagine if you both now had a full-time job 40 hours a week and you had to do half of what you're doing now. Right. Honestly, I don't know if I could imagine that even. <laughs> that would be yeah. quite a lot of work. So, yeah, and so the uh, so it was executive MBA program uh, in the Bay Area. There were a few uh, good ones. Uh, there's a Wharton program. There was at the time the Berkeley Columbia program, and they have since divorced. They separated. Um, so a year after we graduated, uh, they were that program went on for ten years, and they decided to to part ways and separate. Um, I think when they started it, just of interest, um, the time Haas had the had the technology piece and the startups. Uh, Columbia had the finance, and Columbia wanted a little bit of startup exposure. Haas wanted more finance exposure, and that's kind of what brought them together uh, for this program. And I think by the end of ten years, New York was a lot hotter in the startup scenes. Uh, and, uh, and in the Bay Area and, and Berkeley specifically had great finance programs. So they didn't need each other as much. Uh, and they both had other executive programs. So they just decided to, to separate. So we were the, we were the second to last class that actually has two, uh, two degrees. Cool. Got it. So you said it, obviously, you know, um, getting an MBA is no joke. And like you said, getting an executive MBA on top of working is definitely hard. Um, but you know, undoubtedly learned a lot um, as you were, you know, going through to get your MBA. Um, so, what have you learned from there, from going through your executive uh, MBA program? Like, what have you learned that you're still applying 
uh, to your work today with your work as the CEO of, uh, of Graphite RX? Yeah, so the, um, you know, in terms of content, because I did an undergrad in business, there was probably a good 60, 70% of overlap of the content between what I had in undergrad and then what I had in the MBA. I think the difference was I had a few more years of experience. So like engaging with the content is different when you have different experience, right? I think about like you study the same thing, you know, and I don't know if you can think about it, like some courses that you did like in high school and maybe now you're doing it again at, at Purdue, but there's some things where it's like you're studying at the second time or maybe you've experienced some of that. So that was really the, the, the benefit and it was doing it with a group of people you know, cause when I did my, my undergrad, I was, you know, I was 22, 23. Um, and, you know, coming back and doing this at like, you know, 30 was, was different. And so my, my colleagues, my classmates were in that same, same position. So we all had like stories to tell that we're, you know, we're studying something about leadership, um, or something in finance or something in mergers and acquisitions. And then, you know, people were able to bring some of their experiences. So that was really the benefit of, of doing it kind of a second time but in the context of, a, of an MBA, doing it in the Bay Area was great because we had, um, you know, because of the focus and, and a lot of the technology and startup focus, um, some of the courses I was able to take. I took, a, I took a class with a professor named Steve Blank. I would definitely recommend anyone who's thinking about entrepreneurship to check out um, Steve Blank's uh, website. He's considered the... Uh, the godfather of uh, what's called the lean startup movement. And, um, and really what that is in a, in a nutshell, and that's part of what I, what, I, what I learned in my MBA, is there are ways to validate your idea right, effectively um, so that you know that you're going in the right direction. And it's all about how do you, how do you accelerate learning, right? So like startup at the early stage, most important thing is having your idea and accelerating learning, validating, and then tweaking it, right? And so uh, that's something that I that I got the benefit of, uh, of of Steve Blank's course, and he has a lot of really good content online. He's also aggregated some different books. So I'd say anybody who's young and in college and is thinking about entrepreneurship and you know, what do they want to do, it's probably I would add that to my reading list. Uh, and go through some of those things and, and, and materials there and see if you're still as excited about it by the time you're done with it. So is he the author of The Lean Startup? I know it's a very popular book. No, so Yeah, so Lean Startup, that's Eric Reese. Uh, and the, so Steve was Eric's mentor, uh, really, oh, okay. in one in, in Eric's uh, first startup, I believe. So they tell the story kind of how that was, but that's, that's why they gave – I mean, Steve's kind of the godfather of it. The one who wrote it was was Eric. Uh, but some of the concepts of, you know, taking an, an idea and you know, he talks about just getting out of the building. That, you know, this was before we all went virtual with COVID. But instead of like, you know, thinking about ideas just between us three and we talk about it and go build for it, go talk to prospective customers, talk to prospective partners, talk to those who are going to be impacted by your idea, talk to those who are going to impact whatever it is that you're going to do. Right. And the more you can validate that, that, you know, you have really a viable, um, a viable business, um, then that's when you kind of go and you double down. That's when you raise capital for it. Uh, that's when you build a team around it, because a lot of you know, a lot of folks, because especially if they're technical, they know how to build things. 
especially in the Bay Area. Right, so they're building. They go, they go straight to building, and then they're building something, a solution for a problem that may not exist, or it may be a small problem, right? A problem that exists in a, in a very narrow capacity that you may not want to spend the next five to ten years of your life, you know, commercializing a solution for such a narrow problem. Yeah. So all that stuff sounds like extremely useful and helpful, especially with the kind of career that you you have or, and have gone down the path of entrepreneurship um and i'd say you had all of this opportunity to learn and to to really see what it's like to become an entrepreneur to learn from these founders um see what it takes um and going into your first startup it actually wasn't with graphite rx it was with luxster um but that didn't go as planned um and i think <laughs> These are the, the places where we can find the most value and learn the most from because it's in the failures that you learn what you need to do the next time and what can help you be successful. So could you kind of take us through what, what it was like with your first startup, the lessons you've learned you, that you learned from it and, uh, and how it's kind of shaped you into the person you are today? Sure. So when I was working on my executive MBA in, in Haas and Columbia, I was. I mentioned that um, we all we all had jobs when we were accepted into the program, and I decided to quit my job before the first day of the program, or and then end up. It took me about a month or two, but because I wanted to be a consultant, I didn't. I, I felt that that's the way I'd have some control over my time, and instead of actually doing what I promised my wife, which was that I was going to get a consulting gig so we can pay the bills while I'm going to this really expensive program. Um, I started thinking about different startup ideas. It just, I think it was maybe kind of the bug of starting the program. It came in with a lot of energy and excitement. I think like 65% of my classmates had indicated on their applications that they wanted to pursue entrepreneurship. Now, interestingly, wow. less than 5% actually did after graduation because it's hard. Um, but so we were like all hyped up on it. Uh, I was as well. And I was having, um, I was having lunch with, a, with one of my classmates and she was telling me about an experience that she had earlier in her career. She had worked with independent designers uh, for clothes and um, all these just stories of how like they had to work in like Starbucks and restaurants just so they could pay the bills. Like they were really creative, but they didn't know anything about like the business of fashion. They didn't know the business of retail. And it started triggering in me an idea of, well, what if, what if we could do that? What if we could have people that have this great creative talent and give them some kind of, and I didn't know what it was going to be yet, like some kind of platform or infrastructure or way so they can make a living, right? So they can actually excel and, 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 and do something with their, with their talents and not have to, you know, not have to be these, you know, starving artists. And so that started about a two-year journey. Uh, of uh, five different pivots. And usually when you're pivoting that many times, you know you got something wrong. Like that's, you pivot one, two times, it's fine. You pivot five times and something's off. Uh, but I, I spent, I did it exclusively. So for two years, that's all I did. Um, spent all of my time on it you know, other than you know, continue to pursue my studies. Uh, and then, you know, quite a bit of savings. Um, had an office, you know, I was in, in an area uh, in, in, in Palo Alto uh, where there were some other startups. And so it was kind of like an accelerator. Um, and 
ultimately it, it failed. I had to shut it down. And, and that's actually what I'll tell the, the story of Graphite Rx here in a little bit. But the, what the, yeah, so I came into it with passion, right? I came into it with, um, call it smarts, right? Like intelligence. So I, I, I brought my passion. I brought my intelligence. I brought my commitment. The thing is, I didn't have, I didn't really know anything about fashion. I had never hung out with these people. I didn't know really what their problems were. Like I, in a lot of ways, had no business, right? Trying to be in that business. And, you know, at a certain point, I even had uh, the chairman of one of the big retail brands that probably your parents have shopped in, like on my advisory board. And the way I got to him was, you know, through school and I, and I through a conversation and interview similar to like what you guys are doing with me, kind of did with him and he took a liking to me and he said, yeah, I'll help you with your idea. And, and so I, I did, you know, I was, I was scrappy, but really, if you take a step back, um, I went into this not knowing anything about the industry that I was trying to help fix, right. Or that I was trying to, to change in some ways. Um, and so that's, I think kind of one, one lesson that I, I do tell when people ask me and, you know, they say, Hey, look, I have this really good idea. Like, what do you think? And, and I do, you know, I do say, I think generally it's better if you can um, focus on things where you have some unique insights um, or incredible passion. That's the other, that's the other option, right? I mean, if you have something like where you had a family member, let's say that had a certain type of disease and they didn't have a solution for it and you decide you're going to dedicate your life to finding right a, a cure for that disease or a way for treating people. That's sometimes passion can overcome all the rest, but generally speaking, to go from like me, you know, guy who just, I mean, you see how I'm dressed right now, right? Like I'm me in fashion, there's no connection, but I was going to fashion weeks and I was in it like that. It wasn't a natural, that wasn't really a natural business for me. Um, and um, so that was one. The other was I didn't spend enough time. Um, I didn't spend enough time. I think kind of bringing the right people around me. Uh, to, to do to go out this journey together. I was a solo founder, solo founder in, in GraphiteRx as well, but the difference with GraphiteRx was I came in with a lot of experience. So I went into something with no domain expertise, no co-founders, right? And really all I relied on was my my, my passion and, and intelligence and, and grit, um, but that wasn't enough. And so not having any experience with fashion what were some of the actual things that went wrong with the company um, and where you guys really struggled to make it take off? So the, um, as I, I mentioned that I went through like five different, um, five different pivots. pivots. One of the, <laughs> one of the pivots was essentially uh, kind of where this took me down. And that's, that's, I think that's kind of the cool thing about discovery is that you go down one path and based on what you learn, you may go kind of shift and look at other things, maybe problems that you weren't aware that existed that you think could be cool to solve. Um, so at about the same time, there was, so this is 2010 and there was already e-commerce, but there was the, you know, the challenge of if you're, if you're, if you're buying clothes online, is it going to fit? And then, you know, how do you send it back? It wasn't a lot of the, like what we get with prime, we get it the next day and easy to send back. And, um, and then the, the physical stores, the brick and mortar stores were concerned about traffic, 
right? They wanted what's called foot traffic. That, that's the term that's used in, in retail. And I had the idea of, well, what if we could allow people to discover and find what they want online, but then have it wait for them in store? So literally they could schedule, have it waiting in store, and then they could try it on, like if they buy it. If not, they can have someone help them. But it would be something that would both drive foot traffic and still leverage the benefit of the web, right? Being able to do your discovery, find what other people like, and 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 kind of explore the catalog of that retailer in that way. So I thought it was a really good idea. Um, back at school, I was uh, because I was kind of influenced by a lot of the thinking in, in Silicon Valley, which is don't spend your time on doing things that aren't big. And so even though I had validated this, I had figured out a way to do this. The market didn't seem large enough for a venture back backable company. Like this wouldn't be something where I could really get VC funding for and have the you know kind of billion dollar exit that the VCs were interested in. And so I decided to pivot away from it, not because it wasn't a good idea, not because it wasn't doable, not because it wouldn't be profitable. I pivoted away from it because uh, at the time, I didn't want to work on something that wasn't going to be VC backable. Um, so I'd say kind of the, the lesson there is um, lesson there for me. And I tell this to, to people who ask is not every business idea is VC backable. In fact, most business ideas are not, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not worth working on. Because, for example, on this one, I think about a year later, a company did exactly what I had thought about, and you know, Gap had in their dressing rooms where you can where you can reserve online. It was waiting for you there, and you know that may have been a, a company that could have sold for twenty or thirty or forty million dollars. In the Silicon Valley, that's like a that's a that's a that's a yawner. Okay, if you took on venture capital because they need such large returns. For me and my family and, and people who would have been involved in the venture, it could have been a great outcome. In fact, it could have been a great outcome that would have allowed me to have freedom to go pursue my next idea, right? And so I would just say that um, we, we, especially coming from the Bay Area, but I think it's probably true for others, you know, you want to go out and raise money. You want to raise money from venture capitalists. It's so sexy to do that, right? Why Combinator and... And it's not, again, you may have a good idea that you're uniquely positioned to solve for that could have an impact in the area you want and could have a good financial result for you, right, in doing so, but you just won't be able to do it through venture capital. And it doesn't make it a bad idea. Got it. Um, and when you work on a company like this for, for two years, you can become entangled with it and it's kind of like you're everything. Uh, I've even heard some entrepreneurs call their businesses. I know Elon Musk said this, um, like their kid or their their baby. So what was it like kind of stepping away and realizing that this wasn't what you wanted to do and kind of stopping working on the business and kind of transitioning your focus? Yeah, it was, it was very hard uh, because um, at the stage I was at, uh, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's called like the walking dead. It was even before that in the sense that it wasn't, you know, had I had ra had I raised capital, I had employees, it would have like imploded on its own. 
But because I kept sacrificing my time and essentially my family's savings, it was like getting to the point I, I could continue to do it up until we hit the red. And I'd say we probably, we had already hit the red. And so it was, you know, the realization of, look, I've worked on this for two years, haven't been able to get the traction that was needed, um, started getting some interest in the business, but I had run out of gas personally. Like, and I think that's the point as an entrepreneur, like, we have great days and bad days. But when you, when you say, I don't see the light, like I don't see the path to success anymore, that was for me, right, the realization that I did need to, to kind of pause and, and retool, um, go back to making, making money because um, I had at that point three children. So I had already had my third. And uh, I don't know how my wife was so patient with me, um, but that's kind of that's really what it was, was the um, – there was no choice but really to stop. Like I couldn't, could I have continued it for another six months? Sure. But at that point, I just lost some of the spark um, in, in doing that. And then um, when we get to talking about my current company, that kind of, that experience is essentially what set me down a path that um, where I discovered the problem for Graphite RX and, uh, and so and it was a problem that I wouldn't have known had I not worked on Lexter, had I not shut down, had I not been desperate um, and, and had to go do some consulting and then happened to have a client uh, who was um, in, in the pharmaceutical distribution business because I wouldn't have even known about you know, the, the problem that, that we're solving for today. Thank you for listening to part one of our talk with David Zilberman. Stay tuned for part two, where we go deep into David's current company, Graphite RX, as well as the struggles and lessons he learned along the path of starting this company after coming up short with his initial company, Luxter. Don't hesitate to check us out at expedition.success on Instagram. If you have any questions, recommendations, or even would like to be on the podcast, Reach out on our Instagram or through our email at expedition.success.podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening.